I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to the Better Late Than Never edition of Spooky South Coast. Man, you think I'd figure that stuff out by now. Here I am telling people, oh, I, I can come in and fill in for shows and do all kinds of stuff, and I can't even get that to work. So, but Matt Costa came in and saved the day. Kind of. I like the Abe Lincoln Close. look you got going on it's there. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> we don't have a camera pointed on you for Spooky TV, so I'm going to try talking into the microphone. That sounds better if I do that. <laughs> Slightly. Well, I, that usually works. Well, see, what it is is I made all these adjustments for the cameras for Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com, and one of them is I'm not talking directly into my camera, uh, into my microphone. So, look at, see, too far, too close, too far, too close. This is turning out to be one of our best shows ever so far. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we are going to be talking, though, with a great guest tonight. We have Jeff Holder joining us. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about some of his new works, including The Jacobites and The Supernatural. And uh, also, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Bill Lichtenstein, who you might remember his name as Little Bill, if you're a fan of a uh, old rock and roll station that used to be in the Boston market, which we'll get into a little bit later on. We're going to talk about an exciting new film project coming out about that as well. So, a lot to cover. Uh, so, let's jump right into it with our guest. Jeff Holder has written almost 20 nonfiction books on the paranormal, the peculiar, the gothic, and the gruesome from the Jacobites and the Supernatural, and 101 Things to Do with the Stone Circle to Scottish Body Snatchers, and nine titles in the Guide to the Mysterious series, covering everything from the Lake District and Loch Ness to Glasgow and Aberdeen. His work encompasses folklore, archaeology, local history, parapsychology, ghosts, Fortiana, neo-antiquarianism, I tried that five times fast, (laughs) And witchcraft with a side order of gargoyles and graveyards. He has over thirty jobs. One, he's had over thirty jobs. Once lasting an entire morning in a slaughterhouse, and won numerous awards as a video scriptwriter and producer. Uh, he joins us on the phone all the way from—is uh, it Scotland, Jeff? Is that where you're calling from? That's correct. Uh, I'm calling. I'm calling from there. How's the sound from from this uh, side it of the pond? Sounds like you're in the same room as us. Excellent. And uh, so, uh, you know. We want to talk about all this stuff uh, that you write about, and, and especially uh, the Jacobites and the Supernatural, but I just got to ask you, what happened in the slaughterhouse? Um, I lasted until lunchtime and decided to quit. Just a little too gruesome for you? Uh, it was cold, it was dull, um, and, you know, I was young, I was foolish, I could do these things. But uh, you didn't get all the free steaks you thought you were going to get either, huh? No, I didn't. Not quite. <laughs> so it's uh, it's not a big leap to go from uh, working in a slaughterhouse for one morning to covering some of the gruesome stuff that you've written about in some of your works. That's that's true. But yeah, the slaughterhouse was a long time ago. Yeah, well, I was a callow youth at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get involved in researching a lot of these stories? And I mean, you cover such a wide variety of topics. I mean, it's not just paranormal stuff. I mean, there's there's so much uh, in into what you do. Uh, basically, how do you attack some of these stories w- with such a wide scope? Well, it's the it's the kind of material that I really love, um, and so that sort of powers it. That 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 engine, that sort of desire, that enjoyment of the subject really really powers it. But I suppose it's 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 really sort of three things. Firstly, you're, you're looking at published sources, uh, whether those are in, in books or ephemera or, or occasionally online. 
Um, then there's, you know, talking to people, people who've um, had experiences or have got their sort of the family traditions. And then there's the, you know, the going out and doing the field research, which is, you know, often the fun part and, and wandering around and bopping into things, which is you know, my, my, stand, my standard uh, research technique. <laughs> well, that's the way to do it. I mean, the fact that you can actually get out there and bump around is, is, you know, that says a lot more than some of the other people that are in the field. Uh, when you are putting together some of these different works, I mean, it, it must be a matter of, you know, a very wide scope that you have to narrow down. Uh, you know, for example, 101 things to do with a stone circle. That's that's quite a bit of things to do. I mean, did it start off as like 500 things and you picked the 101 best things? No, no, I started with the title um, and wrote 101 chapters. And what it was about, it wasn't about the archaeology of stone circles. It wasn't about who built them or, or why they built them. It's what people have thought about and believed about stone circles in the past three or 400 years and how that's changed their behaviors. So, you know, you get things like, you know, modern druid organizations, belief in ley lines, UFOs, but also their, their role in, you know, things like rock festivals and... Uh, garden ornaments and uh, places to go on dining all, all those kind of things that's 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 basically how i sort of approached it and is there a lot of uh when when putting something like that together i mean there's a is there a lot of tongue-in-cheekness to what you do too it depends on the subject uh if i'm dealing with um things such as uh murders or, or body snatching then uh, that uh, benefits from a direct approach, I mm -hmm. think. Rather, but, you know, but when I'm dealing with something like 101 things to do with the stone circle, there is the de a degree of a sly humour uh, uh, creeping in on, on a regular basis. It's very hard to keep a straight face when you're dealing with the full range, uh, the full um, florid range of um, um, supernatural beliefs. Because that's a question I have as a writer myself. I mean, to to be able to strike that tone in two different works, you know, you kind you write a couple of books in a certain vein, you become known for that style of writing, and to be able to to tune in and out. I mean, is it difficult for you as a writer uh, to remember what tone and what voice you're using in the different works that you're doing? It's not particularly difficult because the tone, uh, the voice is determined by the subject matter, mm -hmm. and also because I've I've already decided in advance uh, sort of how I'm going to approach it. Um, as I said, you know, if, it, if it's to do with you know, criminality or um, uh, murder or that, that kind of thing, then, you know, it, it has to be a serious tone. I think that you have one thing that I probably lacked, and, and that sounds like you have tact. <laughs> so that's probably where my <laughs> troubles are coming about. So, uh, I mean, let's talk about the Jacobites and the supernatural. Uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar, why don't you share with them uh, about the Jacobite era? Because, you know, you know how we are here in the United States. We don't really pay attention to, you know, European history is the way that we should. Yeah, I'm afraid you are going to have to get a bit of a, 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 a dip into the, a, a, a dip the toe into a little bit of history here. Oh, we love that. There are going to be, I'll give you advance warning. There are going to be dates and there are kings. We love and it. So there'll be a test later. <laughs> okay. I'm taking notes. Um, what I need to take you back to is the year 1688. Okay, and this is the time uh, when the principal conflict in British political life is religious. Britain used to be a Catholic country. It was now a Protestant country. The state religion was Protestant. Uh, but there were a lot of people in the country who were Catholics. Many of those people were very prominent. The king, James II, had been uh, crowned as a Protestant but he actually came out of the closet a few years later as a Catholic. 
when his son was born, it was clear that his son would be raised as a Catholic and British royal family would become Catholic. That couldn't be allowed to happen. So the British establishment um, fomented a bloodless coup d'etat. They basically kicked out their king for being a Catholic and they replaced him with the king's daughter and her husband, both of whom were Protestants. James went into exile. The, the Latin word for James is Jacobus, and hence the term Jacobites. And that's when, for the next 60 years, James, then his son, and then his grandson all tried, all tried to get the, the throne back. And it was not a particularly... Uh... No, not a particularly happy time in history, that's no. for sure. No, this this was uh, a de facto civil war. Didn't last for sixty years. It, it sort of there were there were periods of, of conflict, but when those conflicts were in place, um, the nation was split, uh, families were split. A good example um, in in sort of seventeen forty five, you have uh, landed families in Scotland splitting their sons having one son go to fight for the government and the other son go to fight for the Jacobites. That way, whichever side won, they would be on, they would be, you know, on the right side. It was that kind of uh, vicious, uh, uh, div divisive nature exacerbated by religious hatred. And when you're dealing with the different religious perspectives, uh, that also kind of brings in uh, certain – in addition to whatever they may feel toward each other as people, they, they have the – prejudices against their beliefs and i can only imagine when dealing with some of the supernatural stories you know there's a lot of uh, territory that goes with it in terms of you know which belief system involves the different stories yes that's right firstly you know it, war is the crucible of folklore you know if you have armed conflict and you've got that prospect of imminent death and then if you survive you've got the relief of not dying then that sort of creates its own sort of uh, deep Deep, deeply embedded sense of um, supernatural folklore, supernatural belief. But at the same time, the various uh, religious uh, positions were being utilized in propaganda. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the, the government forces, the ones who were against the Jacobites, they regarded the Jacobites as um, pathologically superstitious. And a lot of their propaganda sort of uh, was, was, fo was focused on that. Whereas for the Jacobites... Um, a lot of their propaganda was about looking into the future, prophecies and omens to say that they were coming, they were, they were going to take the crown, they were going to take back what belonged to them. So you can see that you know, they're both religious and sort of supernatural elements were at play here. Well, in, in the book, uh, do you explore the ideas that were going on between them and the, and the differences in, in those beliefs, or is it focused more on the result of that era and, and some of the, the hauntings that may have occurred as a result of uh, that, that Civil War period? Well, it, it's, I actually do both. I, I look at what uh, people were saying, what they, what they were believing at the time, and how those uh, positions, whether those would be religious or positions of supernatural belief, were being pushed in one way or another to uh, as propaganda or to, to convince others or to denigrate others. Um, I'm also looking at the way that that affected belief, and sorry, not belief, uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, belief is all, is all very well, but it's when it changes behavior, that's, that's when it makes it really interesting. And then later on, look, I look at sort of um, the, the later consequences, uh, the, the alleged haunted battlefields and the, the, uh, the, the, the supposed 
um, influx of um, sort of, uh, you know, supernatural experiences at, at these locations. Because here in the United States, especially here in New England, we had King Philip's War, the war between the colonists and the Indians. And then, of course, we later had the Revolution and the Civil War here. And each era has kind of left its scars uh, on different areas of, of New England and of the United States. So I'm sure that there's that same psychological imprint that's left in these areas as a result of what went on. Granted, there's been more time in between, so there, some of it may not be as, as uh, pervading as it may be here. But uh, it seems like any kind of conflict like that is going to just charge up uh, the location. I think, I think you're, you're right in that. And there were, uh, there were numerous battles during the period only a small number have made it to the modern era in terms of their their fame, and those locations still have well they still they still attract a great deal of attention in terms of the idea of hauntings or the idea of some sort of um, sort of psychic imprint as of the result of the terrible things that went on there i 'm thinking particularly here of the Battle of Culloden, which took place in seventeen forty six uh, and uh, the uh, battle of um, uh, uh, Killy which took place in 1689, both of those locations uh, have been preserved as historic battlefields, and because I think partly because of that, because you can you can visit them, they 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 have that that sort of um, uh, that atmosphere that and that that history of people experiencing things in in more recent years. Is it? I mean, I can't comprehend what it must be like to to live in an area like that because you know to us we feel like. The United States is more, uh, you know, just younger uh, mm-hmm. because it, it's not it hasn't been as civilized as Europe has been. I mean, is there a, just a confluence of so many different generations and so many different eras uh, where you are? Or, or does it seem like, you know, when you go to a certain area, it's like, OK, th- things here is very much like it was in this Jacobite era or things here are more toward, you know, the, the more modern era. Is, is it? Do you see a lot of overlap in the different uh, the different eras? Sorry to say, I actually lost you during that conversation. You you went. I did see there was something happening on the screen. It's just is, is do these eras cross, or are things kind of preserved and remembered for its historic significance, or is there a lot of just crossover? For example, uh, some of these sites that may have been during this era have they also later been scarred by other skirmishes that might have happened later on? Uh, principally, no, that, that, that hasn't been the case. Um, th- these locations are almost exclusive to the Jacobite era. Okay. And so you do have that pure strain of haunting from that point to this point? Correct, yes. And when you're researching a lot of these, uh, and you said that you do like to get out there and, and do research yourself in the field, do you go out there and conduct investigations of some of these sites? I know that in the book you do uh, provide locations for people that might want to go and do that. That's right. Well, uh, it, it depends what you mean by investigations. Um, I spend a good portion of my professional life you know, hanging around um, Supposedly haunted houses, supposedly haunted battlefields, uh, haunted castles, stone circles, caves, and a number of other similar locations. And not once have I ever had any kind of uh, paranormal experience. So I'm very dull and boring when it comes to this kind of thing. I think it's important to go to visit the locations 
uh, I can't conceive of writing a book about about a place that I haven't actually visited. Um, but that's to, to gauge the atmosphere, but also to gauge the, the the sense of the geography. How was the battle fought? Where where did the the carnage take place? And how did that geography and history then have an impact on the sort of supernatural beliefs? So it's also a great excuse to go and meet people as well who say they've experienced spooky occurrences at these locations. And the important thing is in, in your role, you kind of approach it with a folklorist's eyes instead of, uh, instead of skeptical eyes. You know, you're more about sharing the story that has developed over these years than to try to disprove any of these hauntings. That's why I have, I have no idea whether any of these hauntings are authentic or not. I wasn't there at the time. I didn't experience them. Um, we have uh, written records. Uh, we have, you know, interviews. Where I've spoken to people who have, who've had these experiences. And I'm fascinated in, in exploring and collating all those various sort of episodes to bring together a sense of the kind of like a supernatural portrait of the location rather than be able to come down on one side or another about, where, about the authenticity of, the, of these events. Because I, uh, I think one of the questions that I've always had is just how open people are to discussing their paranormal experiences outside of not only the United... I mean, I haven't even been around the United States much myself. I haven't spent much time outside of New England. So I just wonder how much uh, in other areas of the world people are open to sharing these experiences. And it sounds like, to me, like... You, People have no problem telling you when they've had, you know, occurrences happen at some of these locations. Well, certainly sometimes that's the case. And, uh, you know, often um, through my explorations, I, I, I meet someone who gives me a contact who puts me onto someone else. And, and that, that obviously uh, assists in the, in, in the investigation. I'm sure there are a great many people who are um, in, entirely unwilling to discuss their experiences, but obviously I don't know who they are because they don't speak to me. You know? um, but there is, there is a, a sense that a number of people are um, open to, uh, to discussing these experiences. They, they, they often wish to be anonymized. They don't necessarily want me to use their real names. Oh, that's, the, that's still the, uh, the impetus that we'll always have in trying to get people to share is they'll say, well, I, I don't mind telling you, but just don't use my name. I don't want anybody I know to, to know that it's me. Yes. All right. Well, we are, uh, we are coming up here on the end of the hour, so we're just going to uh, take a minute for, to run station identification. But just a programming note for everybody out there listening. Normally, Jeff, we have to take a break at this point, and we have to run 10 minutes worth of network news. I'm going to run the risk of getting in trouble, and we're going to skip that because we got a late start here, and we want to be able to utilize our time speaking with you and plus the connection sounds so good coming all the way from across the pond that we want to make sure that we keep it going so we're not going to play the news but we will uh, continue on the discussion during this time if you want to call in with any questions or any comments you can give us a call 508-996-0500 1-877-996-1420 you can also email us spooky crew at spooky or if you want to jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. We do have the cameras up and running, so you can follow along with what's going on on the Internet if you want to see inside the studio. And uh, you can also text us, too, 508-444-2661. That's the way to text us right here in the studio if you want to ask your question that way. So all kinds of ways to get involved in the discussion as we talk more about some of the works uh, of Jeff Holder. And you can also check out his website, JeffHolder.com, and that's uh, G-E-O-F-F-H-O-L-D-E-R.com. So it's, uh, it's as, as most Jeffs say, it's the real spelling of Jeff. <laughs> All right, so why don't we uh, take uh, 10 seconds here to pause. 
for station identification, and we're going to keep going. So don't go anywhere. Uh, stay tuned because the discussion is going to continue in just 10 seconds here on Spooky South Coast. You are listening to WBSM, a cumulus station. There we go. Good enough. First with local news, <laughs> talk, and sports, this is WBSM New Bedford, AM 1420, WBSM, a I'm going to memorize that so that next time that happens, I can just do it. Does it count, Matt Costa, as a legal ID if I just say it? It does. It still counts. Okay. So just next time, write all that down, and I'll go forward. And we're having so many tech problems here, Jeff. I promise we're usually much more professional than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm just going with the flow. Well, I listened to some of the uh, the podcasts that you have up on your website, and you have some uh, some great information and nice little short bursts if people want to go up there and and hear more about some of these uh, individual stories. When did you start putting those together? Just earlier this year. Just it's just been the past couple of months. The the website is great because there's so much information there. I mean, normally, you know, when when you see uh, a website. You know, for me, when I go to see a website of somebody who's written some of these books, you just you kind of get the usual. You know, here's where you can order it. Here's a couple little blurbs about it. But you really get involved in each of the stories in your site, and it's a great way for people to to go and find out more about your works. Uh, let's talk about some of the the other things that you've delved in, delved into in your career as a writer. Uh, Chris, our booker, our booker Chris Balzano was telling me that you've actually done quite a bit of research into some uh, some odd crimes that have happened. Well, yeah, they're, they're not that odd um, in, in a, you know, in the broader sense of um, sort of criminological history, um, unless by, by that, do you mean body snatching or are you talking about murders? You know, body snatching in particular is something that we haven't really talked about. And I don't think oh. I don't think people understand just how much of a problem that it used to be. OK. Uh, um, once again, I'm going to take you back to a, 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 a different era this time from the, um, the late 18th century through to 1832, several tens of thousands of bodies were stolen from graveyards in Britain. That's, just, that's not a, a cottage industry. That's not, that's not a, an aberrant thing. That, that was, that's a, sort of a major commercial enterprise. And the reason for this is that the British law was frankly idiotic. On the one hand, the law stated that anyone who passed a medical degree had to have uh, dissected a corpse, and which makes sense, you know, if someone's going to, sure. you know, cut me up on the on the surgeon's table, I'd like to know that they know where everything everything is is in place inside me. But on the other hand, the law stated that the only bodies available for dissection were those of people who'd been executed for murder, and even in the most violent years you know, in Scotland, you're looking at no more than five or six people executed for murder. And that was a bit of a problem, seeing as there were 800 medical students in Scotland at the time. So there's a bit of a shortfall of approximately 795 bodies a year in terms of being uh, supplying the, those bodies for the medical schools to teach the students. Hence, the students had to go out and steal the bodies. I think these were nice, well-brought-up, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class individuals, all Christians, and they had to go against all those values, and they had to break into graveyards and steal the bodies. And then what happened, once the demand reached such a peak, is that the entire industry was overtaken by career criminals. And, and they started taking the bodies and selling them to the medical students and to the doctors and making a, a tidy profit in, 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 at the same time. And, and the, the especially good thing about that is, you know, they would try to get them relatively fresh, obviously. And uh, usually they would be able to make a little extra coin with uh, whatever they found, whatever adornments they found on the corpse. 
Yes, that's right. Although uh, they had to, they had to take care. Um, firstly, on the on the question of, of freshness, you're, you're quite right. The, the price of the body uh, depended on how fresh it was. Um, so obviously, they they had an, um, a network of agents, usually grave diggers and local doctors, who would tip them off when uh, someone had been buried in a country churchyard, so that the grave dig- so that the body snatchers could go out and and, and take it. Usually on the night of the fu- uh, following the funeral. But in terms of um, what was on the um, the bodies, it was a strange thing. The um, the law stated that the, the the taking the body was not theft because the body didn't belong to anyone. And most of the, uh, the laws at the time dealt with property. The body wasn't property. But if you took the clothes that the body was wear it was dressed in, or you took the shroud that the body was wrapped in, then that was theft, and you know you could you could have ten years in jail for that. Wow. So in most cases, they left behind the clothes. However, if there was any jewellery um, attached to the body, then that was probably fair game. <laughs> it's amazing the way that they find uh, find ways around that. Well, yes, um, but the and the, the the law obviously had problems with this. But what they eventually worked out, they came up with a crime called violating a sepulchre, uh, which was basically the grave robbing equivalent of breaking and entering. So the t- stealing the body wasn't the crime. But breaking into the grave was equivalent to breaking into a house, and therefore you could be uh, prosecuted for that. And the strange thing about this, I'm sure, for a lot of families is because they had that network built in, so many bodies must have gone uh, gone missing that people didn't even know about. By the time they went back the next day, they just saw a freshly planted grave and assumed that their loved one was in there. If the, the That would be the case if the body snatchers had done their job properly and had not been disturbed. But if they were in a rush... Um, they would have um, left the grave in such a, a condition that it would have been quite obvious that it had been disturbed. Um, so it really depended on how much time they had during the during the night to actually dig into the grave, break into the coffin, take out the corpse, and then take put the soil back into it and try to and attempt to restore it to its original condition. In many cases, they just didn't bother. I wonder how many of them had some paranormal experiences as a result of that. Well, it's not um, in. In, in, it's not entirely clear because you know nobody was keeping records during the body snatching era. You know, it was um, it was it was criminal. It was, it was obviously it was a crime. So nobody. Let, was... let me tell you what happened to me when I was out stealing a, a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you have to imagine that you know it's it, it just how creepy and alarming it would be. Mm. And we have we have stories from the period that that sort of circulate that that tell us a little bit about the 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 ideas that were that were going on um we in one case um someone ha- uh, had to be re uh disinterred from one graveyard legally and removed to another graveyard but halfway there you know the 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 bearers of the coffin were convinced that the body was actually moving and then they they just abandoned the the, corp, the corpse and the coffin there right there because they were absolutely convinced that that the person they they just dug up was coming back to um you know to attack them in some sort of I don't know sort of resurrected zombie kind of way, so we have those kind of ideas circulating but nobody actually spoke about anything creepy happening because simply they were criminals and they weren't they weren't open for interviews. Well, at what point did it start to go bad for them? At what point did and I don't mean that as a a joke about the corpses themselves, but at one point did the did they really start to crack down and, and discover some of these people? Because these these were not, you know, these were not easy crimes to pull off. From what I understand, 
uh, you could kind of pick out after a while what kind of person was a body snatcher uh, by the by the scent that was usually around them. Yes, that's 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 very true. For for, for criminal body snatchers, um, they were often shunned in their sort of social situation, particularly if they lived in urban areas because of that. Of course, the, the, the smell of corpses was something that uh, medical students and surgeons would have, would have been familiar True. with and, and as with, as with uh, those around them. But what happened is that, not surprisingly, people got very unhappy about the idea of their loved ones being taken from, from the grave. And so uh, they started to fight back. Uh, various protective measures were introduced uh, to protect the grave, physically protect the grave. Um, people started forming watching committees. They would, they would spend all night in the graveyard, often armed, and there are, there are cases of exchanges of fire with, you know, with, with grave robbers and, uh, people, and people having scuffles. Uh, at least one grave robber was only uh, rescued from a lynching uh, by the authorities at the, at the last minute. But then what happened was Burke and Hare. Uh, Burke and, everyone thinks of Burke and Hare as being body snatchers. In fact, they weren't body snatchers. They never stole a body from a graveyard in their lives. Burke and Hare cut out the middleman by simply murdering people and selling the fresh bodies to the surgeons. And um, they murdered 16 people between them. And when their crimes came to light in 1828, 1829, there was such a scandal. I mean, it's a, a, a titanic scandal it was you know think, think of the biggest murder trial that you, you can think of in the last few years and and replicated and it was it had that kind of effect and that started the ball rolling in changing the way the law um looked at body snatching and looked at the supply of bodies and in 1832 the law changed and meant that bodies were now readily and legally available uh, at a very low cost and body snatching just vanished you know, it was no longer profitable it's no longer something that could be pursued as as a career, so people stopped doing it. I don't know if this was an actual case that happened, but I remember when I was in my younger days hearing, you know, the the type of ghost stories people would share, and uh, I heard a story of a uh, one particular rash of body snatching that was happening. A guy decided to put an end to it. He had himself buried <laughs> and put into <laughs> a grave, and uh, you know, without without dumping the dirt on him, but he was down there, six feet down, laying in the uh, in the coffin. And the idea was when the body snatchers were going to come, he was going to jump out and catch them, and then there you go. But uh, what ended up happening is nobody came to snatch the body, and he ended up getting buried the next day without ever being able to get out. I don't know, is that a real case that happened, or is that just one of those nice ghost stories that we hear? Well, I, I haven't heard that story, and having read a great deal of uh, body snatching literature from the period, uh, I don't recognize it, so I suspect it's actually a piece of fiction, although I'll be really interested to hear if someone actually does have sort of chapter and verse as to this for, as an authentic incident. I heard it as a campfire tale, but uh, if, you know, if whoever told me about it didn't write it down, I'll, I'll be more than happy to take credit for it. I've, I've, heard, I've heard the story <laughs> but, before. But, but I, want, I want names, places, and dates. Absolutely. You know? I want verifiable details on this. It, it really just would be uh, it would be kind of just one of those ironic stories that I'm sure you come across all the time in your research. Yes, that's uh, right. It's the kind of it's the kind of story that people love to tell. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 the precursor of the urban legend. It's short, it's sharp, and it's nasty. And um, you know, it's 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 got an, an uh, you know an obvious sort of moral. So it's just love, the kind of story people love to tell. I'll give you an, another example. There's a a tale told of a a pair of uh, ne'er-do-wells go into a graveyard and they dig up uh, the body of a recently deceased woman 
uh, and to steal the rings from her fingers. And as they're trying to pull one of these valuable rings off, um, the, uh, the, the woman wakes up. She, she hasn't been dead. She's actually been in a kind of coma. And, and they run off absolutely terrified. And she walks home in her funeral shroud, knocks on the door, and her husband opens the door and is absolutely, you know, shocked, amazed, almost to the point of having a heart seizure because he sees his, the wife that he's just buried. Now, I've been told that story and I've read that story in at least five different locations and five different dates. So I'm not entirely sure whether it was ever did it ever actually happen. But in every place that it did, it is alleged to happen. It's supposed to be real, absolutely authentic. Yeah, everyone claims that their version is the genuine one. Well, that's the, 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 the best fictional story always starts off with. Now, this is a true story. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> and there's another sort of body snatching tale, which is um, when I first encountered it i thought oh this is wonderful i found a, a really authentic body snatching tale and, and it goes something like this um a pair of body snatchers uh, steal um a body um and they, uh, they put it in a sack and they put it in a wheelbarrow or on their cart or on their their um their their, their vehicle and they they decide to stop for a drink so they, they go into the pub and they, they they have a few drinks but whilst they're doing that someone who's seen them takes the body out of the sack and substitutes themselves so when the body snatchers now a bit drunk, get back on onto the onto the vehicle and they drive off, the um, the the sack comes alive and starts <laughs> speaking to the body snatchers who of course flee flee in terror. Once again, when I first heard that story, I thought ah, that's wonderful, and I heard it in another location, then I heard it in a third location, mm-hmm. and by the time I heard it in the sixth location, all of which are supposedly genuine, I realised what we're looking at is kind of body snatching urban legend. And and that is the hard part is to tell, you know, they're all good stories, but how much of them can actually be traced back? And I'm sure that you've found many a case that, uh, you know, when you trace the, the story back, you hear the story. And then when you actually do the research and find out the real story behind it, it's nowhere near as interesting as the tale that you were told. Well, the, 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 there is that. But, you know, uh, it, the, there are different ways of borrowing. People love telling these stories verbally you know in social situation in pubs around the campfire in work they love telling these kind of stories and when those kind of stories are told the details are shorn away you know they just sort of concentrate on the on the on the, on the core narrative um and then when people borrow uh, in the in the written word they tend to take the original tale and they change the, the place names. They change the date, but they, they leave, the, leave the rest of it there. So you can usually find the fingerprints of previous written sources quite easily. It's trying to track down whether or not a verbal story has any kind of um, original provenance. That's the really tough part. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that uh, you know, most people, when we're talking about some of the great crime stories that come out of the UK, of course, one of the stories that everybody talks about is... Jack the Ripper, and my co-host Matt Moniz uh, works on a cable show called 30 Odd Minutes, hosted by our friend Jeff Belanger, and you guys just did an episode with Jeff Mudgett where yes. uh, you know, they were proposing that the American version of Jack the Ripper, H.H. H. Holmes, and Jack the Ripper over in England were the, were the, the same, same person. person. Yeah. The same uh, person, yes. I've, I've heard, I've heard that, um, that notion before, and it has, uh, uh, certainly, I think it has merit uh, because of the, the dates seem to match, and you know certainly the personality of the individual seems to match. But then, not to mention um, the physicality. Know, I, I've, got, I've got my own. Uh, or no, I, I haven't. You know, that someone else has come up with um, a, a completely different um, 
identity for Jack the Ripper, and that's uh, equally or, or non not authentic. That's not the word. It's 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 it it's, it has equal merits, I mm-hmm. would say, uh, because once again the, the the dates match. It's just that this this chap um, um, uh, fled London and came up to Dundee in Scotland, where he had no connections whatsoever, and ended up um, murdering his wife and keeping her in a trunk. And at some point, someone scratched the letters, uh, Jack the Ripper lives behind this door, uh, which is probably his wife had probably written, written that. And um, he was hanged for the murder of, of uh, his wife. Willie, his name was William Bowie. Um, uh, but he was in London at the time. He had the skills. He had the misogynistic hatred of women. Um, all the dates fit. He's just as plausible as, 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 the, as the American um, the candidate. We, we may never know. So, but at least in terms of of that branch of research into the suspect, uh, it it would be your assumption that somehow his wife knew and she was trying to to tell the world who it was. Yes, that's right. That's that's what it, it, the, the the scratching of the of the lettering on the on the door where he lived is one of the great puzzles. Uh, it's a mystery. It's never been solved because we don't know who did it. The only person that he knew in the town was his wife he, he was a complete stranger to the town it's a mystery why he fled this particular uh, port from london he had no connections there at all he had no prospect of getting work um so the only candidate for writing that would be his wife but perhaps she didn't mean it was really jack to it but perhaps he was trying to in, in, you know warn people trying to uh, a plea for help that incredibly violent husband was uh, you know this very dangerous individual? On the other hand, maybe she did suspect that he really was the the Ripper. It's it's very hard to tell, but he was hanged for her murder and uh, and a deeply callous uh, and unpleasant murder it was too. Well, in in the different true crime stories that you've researched over the years, I mean, what stands out to you is probably the most peculiar crime that you've ever written about. Uh, oh, that's a that's a that's a good question. Probably. Um, a chap called um, Dr. William Pritchard, oh. who was a, uh, a Victorian doctor in the city of Glasgow, uh, very respectable, um, very um, sort of upper middle class, um, a man of, um, man, someone individuals looked up to. Right? He, poisoned, um, got the, he poisoned his wife, his mother-in-law, and I think two other individuals as well. Um, and uh, he was known as the um, uh, uh, Dr. Crocodile because uh, when uh, at the funerals uh, he, um, he was just shown the, the, uh, the exposed corpse of his, of his wife, he, he burst into tears and, and kissed her face you know, furiously because he was so upset. Um, and that, you know, obviously there were crocodile tears that he was, um, he was, um, he was shedding. And uh, when he was found guilty and, and he was hanged, um, I, I can't remember the, the exact number, tens of thousands of people turned up to see a, a man hang, not simply because he'd, he'd murdered four people, but because he was such a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Because he had, during the course of the investigation, which lasted a very long time, he had maintained this, this, this uh, air of, slightly pompous air of, of respectability and innocence all, all the way through. Um, and so when he uh, when he died, the hangman, as was common at the time, kept souvenirs from from his corpse in terms of uh, his boots. 
that he hoped to sell later. But the hangman had been a bit, um, well, unprofessional, shall we say. And he was dismissed on the spot after the, uh, after the, the hanging. And so those boots were never actually recovered. And I have heard three separate stories of how those boots were, were recovered accidentally by workmen over the past hundred years. And so, so maybe um, someone was wandering around um, Glasgow with the boots of the infamous poisoner Pritchard uh, on his feet, or maybe it's just another urban legend. Once again, I have no idea. And see, these days, we, uh, some of the more modern-day murderers, especially here in the U.S., because of the way the media is, you know, it, it becomes even more heinous when people have already made up their minds about whether or not they did it. I'm thinking in, you know, in terms of somebody like the Casey Anthony trial that we had here. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but a woman who, you know, allegedly, uh, you know, murdered her daughter because she cramped her party style. Uh, and, you know, we watch somebody like that go through this and we feel the same kind of emotion that those people must have felt toward Pritchard of, you know, how dare you. So it becomes less about being tried for the crime and more about being tried for just being a nasty person. That's right. The, 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 I think I think you you've got you, you've hit the nail on the head there because it, it's all about perception. There were many other murderers in Scotland at the time and in Glasgow at the time. Nobody remembers them at all. They you know they they barely form a blip in any kind of popular consciousness. But everyone who's read even the slightest bit about crime in you know Victorian Glasgow, they all remember Pritchard. Not because he poisoned those people, but because he was such. A barefaced hypocrite, and it may be the methods that are used, and it may be the shock value of the media that reported it at the time. But it seems to me, when we're talking about Victorian era crime, both there and here in the U.S., it always seems to be particularly gruesome, you know. And there's always these long melodramatic stories as to why things happen. You know, here our biggest Victorian era murder, of course, happened here in our own backyard. We had the Lizzie Borden case. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it just seems like, for some reason, those Victorian murders, they just seem to capture people's attention more, and more stories come out as a result of them over the years as well. Well, partly it's, it's, it's the, the context of the, the, the changing media of the day. Um, by and large, 18th century uh, printed works were aimed at an educated elite. Uh, newspapers and such like. You, you did have broadsides, which were very cheap pamphlets that were tended to be circulated on the streets. But what they would be done, someone would buy them for, for a penny, and then they would read them to other people, the people who were illiterate. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the 19th century, you have large urban populations, many of whom are literate, and that f- created a new market. So it wasn't just newspapers you have this whole explosion of popular magazines and other sort of similar publications feeding that sort of uh, huge urban appetite for news, particularly news of a gruesome nature. And what you ended up with was a kind of um, like a a murder war with different publications in competition with each other, all fighting to get the, 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 the crucial gruesome details. Which is one of the reasons why you, in the in these sort of uh, Victorian cases, you you have these endlessly detailed accounts of everything connected to the case. Because for the first time, the the gloves were off. The, the gloves of decency and decorum were off because they were in a sort of circulation war with their more um, sensationalist rivals, and that sort of created in itself another market for books on the same subject. So it's those. It, it's, it's it's like the start of the modern fixation with murder that is that is that we find in that period. 
And also, too, I think part of it might be because it's an era of such propriety, you know, where every, you know, everybody was of, of a different ilk. They, they tried to be more civilized uh, than perhaps, you know, some of the, the some of the earlier eras and definitely more so than, than more modern times. So when we look back now, hindsight being 2020, we look at some of these people that were walking around prim and proper all the time with this Victorian sensibility, but then... You know, the stuff that was going through their minds and the crimes they commit are something that even today we, we'd say, ooh, no. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think you, once again, you, you, you've hit on something there. I'll give you another example. Uh, this is another uh, crime from a Glaswegian, uh, the, the, the Victorian period in, in Glasgow. Um, a, a young Frenchman was uh, found poisoned, um, and uh, his lover was accused of the poison, and she was named Madeline Smith. And she was uh, 18, and she was very good-looking, and she came from a very wealthy, very respectable family. Um, and during the trial, the great sort of focus was on on the letters that this the couple had exchanged. Because, because, I, 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 I'm going to shock you now. These these two young people, they'd been having sex. What? That, that, I know, I know, I know. It's 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 an appalling thought, and and it absolutely gripped the Victorian imagination that that this you know this person from the upper upper echelons of society could stoop so low, um, and in the end she was um, found. Uh, there's a there's a unique Scottish verdict. Uh, most courts in the world have guilty and not guilty. Scotland has those, but it also has something called not proven. Not proven simply means that. We think we know, we know you did it, but we can't prove it. And she was found not proven of, uh, for, for, the, for the murder. But she became this like notorious uh, figure. Everyone was focused on her, not because she may have murdered her lover, but because they, they'd been amorous and they'd written, it, written about it in their letters to each other. And there was that sort of what was behind the respectable facade that really sort of gripped the, the audience at the time. So that's what's fascinating to me about the different cultures is the the way that things are looked at. I mean, you know, and I, I wish we had that verdict here because that would have been the perfect OJ verdict. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. It's, but do you find now as you're putting all these stories together and when you're working on these books and, and you're going back and finding these, obviously we're looking at through the filter of, you know, 21st century citizens, but do you find yourself kind of being able to put yourself into the time period of when these things occurred? I mean, I know by going to these locations, that certainly helps. Uh, but are you able to kind of see through the eyes of, of what you think people might have seen them when they happened? Well, in some cases, it's very difficult to do. And I think the, the most difficult aspect is the element of faith. It's very hard for me to reconstruct the the religious context, particularly, for, say, from the, the, the 17th century, when, when people were willing to slaughter vast numbers of their fellow countrymen in the name of religion. Uh, that I find very hard to get a grip on. It's a lot easier for me to get into uh, a Victorian mindset. And I have to say that if I've been writing on this for a while, my wife does notice that my, my, my language changes. I, I start having the cadences um, and the rhythms of the sort of uh, the, uh, the reportage of the, of the Victorian period. So it does, it does, take me over a little bit um well certain periods do anyway i can just imagine what it must be like to uh to try you know to live with somebody that walks around and suddenly starts talking like you know they're from the 17th century <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah she, she 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 has to uh has to stop me every now and then you know and, and point this out 
I do a funny thing with my seven-year-old where, uh, if, you know, if I, he starts getting upset about something, I, I throw out a quick Cockney accent, and it just cracks him up to no end. And, you know, we'll be out in public, and he'll hear somebody with a British accent, and he'll be like, Dad, Dad, do your British voice. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think people from Britain like to hear, like, Monty Python caricatures of their own countrymen. Yes, we do like that, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now you, we talked about some of your works that you already have, but I noticed on your website there's a whole bunch of stuff that's uh, slated to come down the pipeline real soon. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, uh, um, Haunted Dundee is um, coming out in, I think, March, I believe. And uh, Dundee's a, a large industrial city on, on the east coast of Scotland. It's never really been touched by... Um, people writing ghost books before for the simple reason that it's not very attractive. It's a you know it's a rather well, dull industrial town. I, I know I know Dundonians won't, won't thank me for saying that, but <laughs> I, I you know I've got all these ghost books on my shelves. You know they you know they cover the whole of the British Isles. None of them have ever been to Dundee because it's not very nice. So you know why should we go there? You know let's go to Edinburgh. That's beautiful. That's that's lovely. Um, uh, or we'll go to the countryside, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then I've got a, a book called um, Paranormal Cumbria coming out about a month later. And that's um, Cumbria is uh, a, a county in the northwest of England. And uh, I'm going beyond ghosts there, covering um, stories of, uh, oh, gosh, um, witchcraft and fairy sightings and big cat sightings and vampires and all that, all that uh, kind of thing. And I'm currently writing a book called Haunted St. Andrews in District. And St. Andrews is a, is a small university town on the east coast of Scotland. So its ghosts are, are one more refined. You know, they tend to be uh, ghosts of academics and um, monks and people like that. You know, uh, so it's, it's, cause it's, it's a completely different atmosphere for that. Well, we'd like to have you come back and talk about those works. And we promise we'll have all the technical stuff sorted out so we can have the full show and, and not be uh, cut short by tech issues here but we're glad that you know without skype we'd never be able to talk to somebody over there because you know the phones here we have to put 10 cents in if we want to call down the street yeah yeah i i i think skype is just wonderful i you know i i i'm a big fan skype the reason why we have to keep you up at three o'clock in the morning that's very true yes <laughs> all right well thank you very much for joining us tonight again jeff holder's website is jeffholder.com g-e-o-f-f holder.com and it'll be linked up on spookysouthcoast.com as well stay tuned for all the works that he has uh coming up there as well and, and i want to thank you not only for your writing and for your research but i want to thank your fellow countrymen for innocent gun which i've recently discovered <laughs> you're, you're most welcome all right. And uh, if you ever come this way, let us know, and we'll be glad to sit down and have an innocent gun with you. Well, that's very kind of you. And uh, can I just point out that uh, for, for, the, for, for listeners who are on your side of the pond, you can get my works on Amazon.com. Absolutely. Uh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a whole page on, on, on my books there. And we'll also put them up on the store on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff Holder is his name. Check out his website, JeffHolder.com. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about... The American Revolution, but not the American Revolution, in which we took care of some of Jeff's neighbors down there <laughs> across the pond. But uh, with the American Revolution being rock radio here in America. So stay tuned. We'll talk about all that coming up in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast.
Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And if you are from this area, if you're from Massachusetts, if you're from New England, and if you're from the same crowd that we're from, uh, then WBCN meant something to you back. And I think I can get away with saying it here on the, the WBSM side of things because, you know, it, it's not on the broadcast radio anymore, but it is still alive in some fashion. It's an HD station and it streams online and it streams through apps. So it is still out there. However, it's not the omnipresent signal that it once was. And it was something that really made a difference in people's lives. And the story of how it came to, to be so influential is just as amazing as the power that it held. And uh, joining us on the phone right now is our guest filmmaker, Bill Lichtenstein, who actually was one of the people that was part of that revolution. And now he's putting it all together in a new film called The American Revolution. He started at WBCN in 1970 at the age of 14 <laughs> as an intern and then worked his way up through the ranks. And, and now that you're a filmmaker... Uh, is it kind of strange to to think that at 14 years old you got to start when there's people who are, you know, 14 years old now that will have never have heard of WBCN? Well, yeah, it, it is, and I was also thinking that I used to have a late night show even at the uh, young age, and so being on the radio at this hour is something that that I love doing and haven't done for a long time. But but really, you know, it's it's a great time to be on the air. Yeah, it's. Um, it's it's in some ways a long time ago. In a lot of ways, there are a lot of things going on uh, that are very reminiscent of that era of the late 60s and early 70s right now. So it's an interesting time to be working on this film. It's strange, though, because as radio has become – radio has become pretty much the antithesis. Broadcast radio has become the antithesis of everything that WBCN was about. And i got to be careful so I don't get fired here. No, no, no. <laughs> but I, I, I think, you know – Radio in, in its widely current form, which is a streaming service for music and news and information, um, in a lot of ways has been trumped by the Internet, because you can go on to some of these, uh, you know, Spotify and hear any music that you want. What, what WBCN offered and what programs like yours offers and, uh, you know, is a chance to listen not just to music or information, but to a personality, to a human being that, you know, has a point of view and makes you think and challenges you and... I think that's what was really amazing about that form of radio. In its early days, BCN was one of the, what they called, free-form radio uh, stations, which meant that if you were on the air for four hours, you could ba those were your four hours. You could basically do whatever you wanted uh, within that time period, except anything that might lose the station its license, like, you know, play a, an album that has uh, the seven bad words on it. But pretty much it was your time, and because of that, uh, you know, there was a group of really creative people, and they did some amazing, uh, you know, work on the air. And this was something that, uh, you know, became kind of the uh, template for so many other stations, not just in, in the way that it was run, but just in the risks that were willing to take on air. Yeah, and I think there is, you know, part of it is contingent on a... Uh, a radio station owner or whoever has control of the station having enough confidence to say, look, you know, this is your time, do what you want. I think the creeping, um, you know, and it's the same in news, it's the same on television in a lot of ways, the, the creeping interference comes from people who say, well, do whatever you want, but <laughs> could you play these songs and could you read that, you know, and suddenly it's no longer really, um, 
you know, its own thing. And so I think that began to happen with a lot of radio uh, as time went on. But in its early days, it was just a remarkable station. And, and most importantly, and it's really what the film, the documentary film we're working on, The American Revolution, is about, is that WBCN and its listeners and its extended family of people who were involved in, in underground media in Boston in those days had a tremendous impact locally and nationally on the culture, from music to, to art, uh, the politics, and, and social change in general. But the station, as you will see in the documentary, was such that you could go from one end of Boston and one end of Cambridge and not have a radio, and you would just hear BCN the whole way coming out of stores and in cars, and it was that omnipresent. It was sort of the heartbeat and the, the soundtrack of the city. And what's interesting is the way that uh, WBCN came to be in existence and the way that this freeform radio version of it came to be in existence is it's kind of like a tip of the hat of what the best of that entire generation was about because, you know, here they were to some degree being subversive in terms of political views and what was normally being expressed on this station, but they did it in such a, a, a charming way and a way that also made money and listenership for that station. I mean, if, if I'm correct here, yeah. what, it was the Boston Concert Network, was it? Yeah, it was a guy named T. Mitchell Hastings, uh, who was a associate of Major Armstrong, who invented FM radio. And for those not um, old enough uh, to remember, uh, it was AM radio, but there was a lot of static on AM when you listen to it. And FM radio was created as a way of being able to broadcast symphonies, and opera and, and music where you would not have that kind of interference. And um, T. Mitchell Hastings was an engineer and a friend of Major Armstrong's, and he was trying to build a chain of uh, a symphony, classical music stations up and down the East Coast. So there was a BCN, which was Boston Concert Network, and NCN New York Concert Network, and I think Hartford had one, HCN, WHCN. But um, they were losing money, and they weren't really making a go of it. And so in March of 1968... Uh, a Harvard law grad named Ray Reapin called the station, spoke with uh, the owners, and said, look, if you give me the time between 12 midnight and 6 in the morning, where they couldn't sell ads, and just give me that airtime, I will make you more money in those six hours than you make the rest of the day. And he recruited a bunch of college kids, and they went on the air from the back room of the Boston Tea Party, which was the, the local rock club uh, that was sort of Boston's version of the Fillmore East and West. And it became a phenomenon. Suddenly, uh, posters that they printed up saying, Ugly Radio is Dead, appeared all over Boston. And within a few months, they were on 24 hours a day and soon became the hottest station in Boston. Well, the the thing that I, I gleamed a little bit from the trailer that you have online and also from stories that I've heard over the years, though, is that, it, it, I mean, we were talking about a time when nobody wanted to brag, kind of how we got this show. You know, you, <laughs> you're in a time slot where nothing else is really going on anyway. Um, in, in this case, where we are here, it was just rebroadcast of some of the programs during the show, and it was dead air uh, on BCN at the time, right? Yeah, they were they weren't on you know they were not on the air. But interestingly, for that demographic, as they say, you know, young people in the late sixties, early seventies, uh, you know, who were in often uh, times it's hard to believe taking mind altering substances or <laughs> uh, you know listening to uh, to albums into late in the night. Um, that was prime time, and there were a lot of people who were up at two, three, four in the morning, and so they immediately built a very uh, strong following uh, in those hours. And what was so so 
good about it is because it had that instant kind of reaction and it gave WBCN the two distinct demographics and it also you know found a way to make both sides happy. I mean, I, I remember talking to Ron Della Chiesa and hearing stories from him about how you know he just called them the kids mm-hmm. and you know he. There was none of that, you know, our generation versus their generation. The enthusiasm and the the new approach that they brought into things, you know, it just kind of made everybody feel pretty good. Well, I think that's right. And, and in an interesting way, um, you know, the focus of the station and the kind of music that they played was not singularly, as you might expect, you know, uh, hard rock and acid rock. And, I mean, it certainly was the first time that many listeners heard groups like Led Zeppelin or The Who or Grateful Dead. But at the same time, the, the record library at BCN included classical music, a lot of jazz, uh, blues, really good, solid, you know, Muddy Waters and Holland Wolf, um, R&B. And so, you know, it was not unusual to turn on BCN and hear, you know, uh, folk music, almost any form of music. And so in that way, it was really inclusive you know, of uh, of what the station had been, but it really pushed the edge in a lot of ways, as well as politically. It was not just music, but it really also had a very strong, you know, uh, anti-war, anti-Vietnam War, uh, social justice, political uh, bent as well. And one of the strong personalities that helped guide that uh, political viewpoint would, would be Charles Laquadera, the, the reason why I got into radio and wanted to get into radio, one of the, the reasons why. And he was somebody who was never shy about expressing his beliefs, but he did it in such a way that you know every, everything that he seemed to bring to the table was different and now is standard fare for morning radio. I mean, now so much of what we hear is just some version of what he originated, and when he did it, it was kind of like a thumb in the eye of the establishment, and now it's part of the establishment's handbook that they hand out to the new hosts in the morning. I think that's right, and, and some of it was just simply iconoclastic, you know, rebel without a cause, but, but most of it was really very uh, sensibly targeting what, what people felt were, <clears throat> and excuse me, in the same way, you know, there's a clear sense today about Wall Street and the financial industry and what's going on, you know, there was a very clear sense that the war in Vietnam uh, was being driven in, in large part by financial interests of a lot of corporations and government interests. And, you know, a lot of it was very, uh, you know, carefully targeted to those things. But, um, you know, one of the things that was interesting about BCN, and, and Charles talks about it in the film, um, is that it was never uh, overtly dogmatic. In other words, we never said, uh, and couldn't say in those days because of the way radio licenses were, you know, uh, write to the governor and tell him uh, to sign the bill uh, in which, you know, the Massachusetts, uh, you know, formally protests the war. What we would say was call the governor or, or telegram the governor and let him know how you feel, and then we would play, you know, Bob Dylan or something. <laughs> so uh, it, it really, you know, clearly I think had a very strong following, and, and I think everybody knew what the messages were. The news department, though, was much more, I think, overt in its coverage. And um, Although it really was a supplement to what people got from the Boston Globe and, you know, the evening news. It wasn't meant to be the whole story, but it, it gave a an alternative view, I think, that was hard to find in those days before the Internet. And what's amazing about this film that you're putting together now is not only the story that you're telling, but the star power that you can bring into it because so many of these 
names that you read if you if you go online there'll there'll be entire lists of all the different DJs that have worked there yeah. and they're just such influential people in in the broadcasting industry today that it's it's hard to imagine you know how many more lives they've touched and what they've gone on to and how much effect they've had and how many careers they've launched uh, just by doing what they did well i think the the station touch is touched so many people from listeners to people who've worked there and musicians and and one of the things you know i i just want to say because i think you can see it clearly is we we have a website for the documentary film we're producing the american revolution and the website is kickstart wbcn.com kickstart wbcn.com and we're in the process it's a nonprofit production we're in the process of trying to raise $104,000 in the next two and a half weeks and if we hit the goal uh we'll get the money if if not uh, it's an all-or-nothing thing. We don't get the money uh, or any part of it. So um, we we have at the site a trailer that we've produced that has material from the film. And I'm explaining this because, in part, the trailer has a number of really great stories in it about musicians whose careers were launched by the station from, you know, bands that came to play the uh, Boston Tea Party like Led Zeppelin and The Who and Jeff Beck. Um, Bruce Springsteen, you know, who played a lot in Boston, I think more than people really know, and that's a big untold story that we're telling. Um, his first radio interview was on BCN, and it's, a, you know, precious. I mean, he's sort of nervous, and he says hi to his mom, and, you know, <laughs> it's really... And I think the, the story is how the station helped launch a lot of careers, and that Bruce Springsteen didn't arrive fully formed and playing 80,000-person stadiums with helicopters overhead, you know, he was a kid with a guitar, had to get up on the stage with just a mic stand and have the courage and the talent, you know, to win people over. And I think the station, you know, support of him was instrumental in launching his career. But, you know, I think it gives another view of a lot of these artists. Aerosmith also on the site, we have their first live broadcast three weeks after their first album came out. And Steve Tyler is 24, and they sound like a really good bar band, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the station was instrumental in helping a lot of these groups who before then wouldn't get played on AM radio, Top 40 radio. And so this was an enormous breakthrough for bands like The Who, Grateful Dead, uh, you know, all of them, to be able to get this kind of airplay and connect with people. And, of course, you did have the inside story. Uh, you got the inside run on all the Jay Giles band music, too, because Peter Wolf got to start with the station. That's in the trailer as well. Peter Wolf started off as a, a disc jockey an announcer on WBCN. In fact, Charles Lockwoodera tells the story that he got his job because there was an opening because Peter Wolf went off to go sing in some band, which later became the Jay Giles Band, and that opened up a, a slot there. But he was terrific. And all of that uh, stuff he does with Jay Giles, that woofa goofa mama tuffa stuff, um, it, it was all stuff that he did on BCN as an announcer, and it's really it's great. And on the website here, kickstartwbcn.com, you have different packages and different ways people can get involved in donating to the movie. It's not just a matter of you know having to donate as much as you can. You can donate even just a little bit. And if you spread the word and get enough people whose lives this station has touched, then it all adds up. And the, talk about some of the different packages that you have. Sure. I mean, you know, it's. It, I should say that part of the reason we're doing this on Kickstarter is that the station had no archives. So when we started this project five years ago. We reached out to its listeners and to WBCN Nation for help. And over the last five years, we've amassed an enormous amount of tapes of broadcasts and photos. And now we're, we're uh, raising funds in this uh, you know, manner to sort of include everybody. And we wanted to make things available to people who could pledge anywhere from a dollar uh, to $10,000. And I should say, if you pledge a dollar 
and we're asking people who who pledge a dollar um, if they can't give you know uh, more than a dollar that's fine uh, but to uh, reach out to their friends and everybody they know to tell them about it we're calling them outreach partners but anybody who makes a pledge will get their name in the film and a big thanks but some of the things we have for example are photographs from uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, concert that he gave with Bonnie Raitt back in 1974 it's the night that John Landau, who was a critic for the Boston Phoenix at that point, or the real paper, I guess, um, wrote his famous, I've seen a rock and roll's future. And it became a big launching point for Bruce Springsteen to have this review written. Well, we have photos, beautiful, haunting photos of that night. We also have um, posters from the Boston Tea Party, the original posters from the original artists that have been made into these triptych three-panel uh, prints that are limited edition prints. Um, there are great photographs from Peter Simon of a lot of rock stars who were here then. Um, and so there's a lot of great stuff. And, and we all, we're also going to have a, um, a donor appreciation night a year from now at the Paradise, which has been donated. Um, so if you give $104, you'll get a ticket and come celebrate with everybody that helped make this film happen uh, a year from now. We don't have bands lined up yet. But as Charles Lacquadera has been saying, who do you think would come play a BCM blowout uh, with all the people involved asking? So we expect it to be just a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime event. And you know, we did lament a little bit uh, at the beginning of the discussion the loss of WBCN to the landscape. But it does live on in the new media fashion with the Internet and the apps and, and the HD radio and everything. But what, what I'm interested in is I'm hearing little bits of buzz that, uh, that Sam Copper is actually looking to bring it back to the regular radio airwaves. Is that something that you've heard, that it might be something that possibly happens somewhere down the line? Sam Copper has kept the spirit of WBCN alive um, after, and just if people don't know, the station went off the air in 2009, and the frequency that BCN was on, 104.1, uh, CBS, which owned the station at that point, moved another station there so they make room for uh, the Sports Hub at, I guess, 94.5, the Sports Hub. Um, and so BCN went away, and Sam Copper, who was one of the original announcers on the station, has kept the spirit of the station alive by uh, a streaming uh, HD uh, channel that you can get on an HD radio, and you can get it online called Freeform BCN. And it has a lot of the music BCN played, and you know, increasingly uh, people from BCN have been on there as well doing uh, spots. I've, I've already been... Harassing him, saying, i, I got to get involved in this somehow. <laughs> no, it's a great station. And, and again, if you go to, um, you know, we, we uh, uh, everybody from the station, you know, uh, Sam is involved as, as well in this effort. If you go to kickstartwbcn.com, you can make a pledge. It's really simple. And you don't have to, uh, your card does not get charged until we meet the goal. So if we don't make the goal, you, you know, you don't get charged anything. And uh, as I said, we've got about two and a half more weeks. And in fact, can I say the next person who does make a pledge at kickstartwbcn.com, we will give them a very special gift in addition to um, what they're getting from uh, being a donor. Wow, there you go. Well, we, we have to take a break here for station identification coming up in a minute. And I was, I was going to suggest that uh, you know we, we end the show. Uh, we'll go over a little bit here, and we'll play that trailer that you sent us. And that'll get people's minds, you know, remembering back some of the great times, the great music, the great happenings of WBCN, and they can reach into their wallet and they can make a donation on kickstartwbcn.com. It would be much appreciated. Thank you very much for having us on. Really appreciate it, and um, thank you. Thanks. We'll talk to you again in the future when, when 
you meet the goal for sure and when the things move forward. Great. And again, it's kickstartwbcn.com. Thanks. Right. Thanks. That's Little Bill Lichtenstein joining us uh, almost, almost back in his old time slot. <laughs> All right. Have a good night. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. And to everybody else out there, uh, before we play this, I will say that uh, we will be back next week to talk more about the paranormal and other cool things that we think are awesome, uh, as we are each and every Saturday night. So I'll say goodbye. I'll say until then, for Matt Moniz, from Matt Cost, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. We want you all to stay tuned for some WBCN memories. March 15th, 1968, and now it's time for our revolutionary new experiment in radio. I You're listening to wonderful Bigger Than a Bread Box Radio, WBCN in Boston. working on the Boston Tea Party, which is a dance hall up here, wanted a radio station and found one that had lost so much money where they couldn't afford to be on the air from about 10.30 at night to about 5 o'clock in the morning. And so he said that he had a, a gang of people who were nice people uh, who would like to borrow their studios during the time when they weren't selling any time. And he said that he bet that they would get some listeners and that uh, everything would be all right. So, uh, on March 15th of 68, we came on the air and tried to explain to people who had been listening to the radio that what they were about to hear would be a little different from that, but that um, uh, rock and roll was here to stay. You hear a 100,000 watt station just zopping out all over the place in the dormitory rooms coming out blasting away in uh, all the stores you could go from one end of boston to one end of cambridge and not have a radio and you could hear bcm all the way The Cambridge Army and Navy store believes in genuine bargains. Here are a few of them. 13-button wool Navy bell bottoms for only $8.99. This is Abby Hoffman, roving reporter for WBCN. It's so vivid to me what it was like. Uh, you just walk in and and to a radio station, and there'd be all these albums, uh, 
maybe six or seven hundred albums on a wall, and you could tell by the color almost of that one edge what artist it was. And we would pull these albums out, and you know, first you'd pull four or five and say, This is how I'm going to start my show. And then you'd start getting inspired along the way, and you'd say, Ah, this song will go with. And you'd run up before the record ended, and you'd find that album, you'd pull it out, you'd go to the other turntable that was empty, and you'd put the record on, slap it on there. And you cue it up, but it was in the same key. You'd let it go, and that was the magic moment where you, the two songs would go together, and then the other song would come up, and people would go, "Oh man, that was great!" When BCN went on the air, March 15, 68, the first shift originated out of the dressing room at the tea party on a portable two turntable board. Test one two three four. Okay, it's almost 1970. And uh, this is my very first time on the radio, and I want to say hello to my mother who lives in California. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Your dial is set at 104.1 FM, WBCN in Boston. Uh... Eventually, by playing records and injecting news into it, I think that just blending it all together. You know, people say that uh, we're a music station, and people tell us, be happier on the air. They tell the individual announcers. But I can't separate that, playing the w records, from what's going on on those machines in there, the newsroom. Our lives reflect what's going on in the world more and more. And uh, to uh, try to look askance or try to just play pretty music while President Nixon's ordering in troops to Cambodia cannot be done. This is not an invasion, 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 invasion. Shot 